Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Proverbs. We're going to be looking at chapter 10. And just by way of introduction, when we look at chapter 10, we see that the first five verses form a kind of soft unit with regard to very nebulously, again, just to simply righteousness, but we would expect something that nebulous, simple, foundational, right as we start the general Proverbs of Solomon. And then in verse 6, all the way through verse 23, we have a section largely on the mouth, with the exception of verses 15 through 17, which form a little reprieve from the overall theme, and we go back to righteousness and wickedness. And then at verse 18, we're more or less back onto a consideration of the mouth. The mouth, words, tongue, lips, etc. That's where we'll pick back up today at verse 18, and we'll, I think we'll be able to move fairly quickly to the conclusion of this section, and then on to the contrast between righteousness and wickedness. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, at verse 18, and I think we covered this to one degree or another, the one who conceals hatred has lying lips, and whoever utters slander is a fool. And so we talked again about the recurrent theme of hypocrisy with the lips, having hatred in the heart but flowery speech in order to deceive one's true intentions. And then likewise, we talked about the simple statement that whoever utters slander is a fool. Okay. And often, we view slander as something positive. That was kind of how we ended our meditation, either as a kind of venting, which supposedly has some sort of psychological benefit. That's at least what we tell ourselves. I don't know where on earth we got this idea. And also we tend to use it socially as, as currency. Let me give you the inside scoop on so-and-so or such-and-such. And so you mean to establish a deepening of the relationship, a deepening of the trust, when in fact you've just undermined it with your very slander. If you're willing to slander to someone, you're willing to slander about that same someone. Okay, on to verse 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. A somewhat humorous subset of this would simply be our Lord's admonition, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than that is from the devil. 
when someone's doing a whole lot of talking, a whole lot of swearing, a whole lot of embellishments, it's one of the quickest, easiest ways to tell that they're not being straightforward, not being truthful. So here, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. And that would have us also reflect on the reality of disciplining our tongues and disciplining our speech. Now, some people find that easier than other people, just how they're naturally constituted. Tends to be psychologically defined introverts and extroverts are different in this area. So introverts just sort of defined would be they're energized when they're on their own and being social drains them versus an extrovert is energized by conversation and interaction and being alone drains them. Okay, so we can see then that introvert or introverts may in some respects have an easier way of this than extroverts because extroverts love to gab. But regardless of where you fall on that spectrum, uh, we all have to be watchful of what we say. That's the way of wisdom is to be guarded in your speech and to watch what you say. And I think that makes a kind of intuitive sense in regard to our professional lives, but then when we get home, we somehow often turn that off. And we shouldn't. (laughs) Home is just another sphere in which we labor in our Christian lives. There is no place this side of heaven in which we get to just let down our guard and be as we are and everybody else has to deal with it. That instantaneously makes you an unfaithful husband or an unfaithful wife or a dishonorable child. Okay. So even in home, we all have our duties, roles, and responsibilities. We want to be on guard with our tongues, our words. So when words are many, transgression is not lacking. Here's the contrast, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. So that restraining of the lips is the task. You can think of James in the background here talking about how great a forest fire is kindled by a single spark, and he likens that to the tongue. Just one little tongue can set off an entire forest fire wherever it misspeaks. So to restrain... And not just restrain by way of like, okay, well, my Lenten goal now is to speak 50% 50 less words (laughs) this week, although that might be fine. (laughs) But to restrain in the sense of a rider on a horse, okay, to direct, to have the tongue under one's control, which again, as James says, echoing in the background here, only a perfect or complete or mature man can do. All right, well, I'm still in process, but uh, this is the task of wisdom, not to simply let the mouth do whatever it wants to do. Transgression will not be lacking, but to restrain, to direct the lips is prudent. Again, what do you intend to do with your words is a really good question to ask before you speak. 
<laughs> after you speak, it's, it's too late. You know, and I know this sounds like, well, this is a class on wisdom, so I won't even apologize. Um, you know, this is, this is something we don't often do. We speak before we even think what our goal is or how our words will serve that goal. So let's say, let's say your spouse does something that upsets you. I mean, it could just as easily be an employer or an employee or whatever. Okay. Immediately you want to respond, but very often you haven't even thought yet what you want your response to do. You haven't sat back for a split second even, let alone a couple minutes, and actually said, if I could come to an ideal outcome, this is what the ideal outcome would look like. And then once you define that, now you know how to use your speech. And maybe you can get there, maybe you can't. But at least your speech is done with some intentionality and with a direction in mind, right? So that would be another example of restraining the lips, um, which is prudent. Okay, so that takes us through verse 19. On to 20, and again, you're going to see in these verses 18 and following, we've already seen lips, utters, words, lips. Now in 20, tongue. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. So tested silver, purified silver, that's really what's meant by that word choice. I don't know how popular it is, but we used to call people silver-tongued if they were eloquent. But that's not exactly what's being stated here. Not eloquence per se, but is the tongue in service of righteousness, in service of wisdom. That is a tongue of tested or purified silver. The heart of the wicked is of little worth. Hmm. There goes the idol of equality and egalitarianism. So here the contrast is kind of twofold. It's really a beautiful poetic construction, a beautiful dance of words here. You have the tongue and the heart contrast of the tongue of the righteous and the heart of the wicked. And then secondarily you have choice silver or purified silver, which is of great value, over and against that which is of little worth. So the tongue of the righteous is purified silver. The heart of the wicked is of little worth. And again, we're having in mind here believer and unbeliever. We're having in mind here one who is walking the path of wisdom in the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, versus the wicked who has declined that way and is following his own path, which ultimately, following his own path, ends up in the way of folly and the way of idolatry. So far, so good? Yeah, I think we'll find these relatively straightforward. Verse 21, The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of sense. Okay, well, what is this idea of feeding many is kind of strange that our lips would feed many. Maybe you're thinking of National Geographic and those birds that, those mama birds that go grab the food and then feed it to their babies. Probably not far off 
from what's being considered here. But the idea is that the lips of the righteous, so the lips of the saint, feed many. Because words are life. The words of the righteous are life. Because they are the words of the living God. And the idea of the lips serving has a loose connection with the idea of the tongue of the righteous in verse 20 being purified silver as if it were a serving dish, as if it were some sort of dish or utensil by which food is given. So whether it's the tongue that is of choice silver or the lips that feed many, the idea is that life comes unto others by what you say. Now, again, we can think about this in the smallest of ways up to the largest of ways. The largest of ways, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So the words you speak literally have the power to bring eternal life. I think we can even think this in smaller ways. What father hasn't sat at his dining room table over a family dinner only to realize, perhaps after the fact, but that's fine, that what he said actually brought death rather than life. And brought starvation and weeping and gnashing of teeth as opposed to food and life and comfort and family. So again, we're reflecting on these realities that what you say from the smaller things to the larger things have profound impact on others in the way of life and in the way of death. So again, the last thing on earth you want to do is be careless with your words. Okay, so the lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of sense. So, again, a lack of this godly wisdom leads to death temporal and eternal, and leads unto the death of others, even though that's not explicitly stated. Okay, in 22, we don't have any direct connection with the mouth. But obviously it's in keeping. The blessing of the Lord makes rich. I mean, in a sense, you have the mouth of the Lord granting the blessing. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. Worth pondering. And then on to 23, doing wrong is like a joke to a fool, but wisdom is pleasure to a man of understanding. So I think this idea of the blessing of the Lord making rich, he adds no sorrow with it, would like, okay, translate that for me, pastor, into some sort of biblical language that I'm going to recognize. It would be something like, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It would be something like the pure gospel, no strings attached. The blessing of the Lord that enriches us with the profoundest of all riches, those which neither moth nor rust can destroy, nor thief break in and steal. And with such blessing, no sorrow is added with it. 
Earthly blessings, temporal blessings, always come with an, an inherent sorrow. Ecclesiastes points this out. The sorrow is that as soon as you have it, you might lose it. <laughs> That's the sorrow of any blessing here on, in this life. I mean, even a child. Here it is. It's so wonderful. I couldn't ask for anything more. <gasps> it could be taken from me. That's the nature of all of these earthly blessings, and it contextualizes them for us that they don't become idols. But the earthly blessings are blessings that always come with sorrow or the potentiality for sorrow, which in and of itself is a sorrow. The blessings that the Lord gives us in the pure gospel have no sorrow added with it. So that would be my reflection there. And I think that that kind of, those sentiments flow into 23, where doing wrong, um, for a fool who knows not this wisdom and this goodness of God, doing wrong simply becomes like a joke. And I think that that's, I mean, of course you have kind of the, Jungian archetype of chaos in a figure like the Joker, Batman and Joker, and the idea of everything's hilarious in a disordered, chaotic way. And by the way, which I think, and this is ultimately why I wanted to bring this up, one of the things that we want to recognize is that the fundamental battle of God's people, say, from the fall all the way to the present, we can say, we can use these big categories. And I even brought this into the prayers of the church today. We, I think, are very familiar with the concepts of good and evil. And in every age, it is effectively a battle of good or evil. The specifics change, but that's what it is. Likewise, it's always a battle of truth versus the lie, And that's true in any century of history, although the specifics change. But one more lens through which we should see things, and in which the Bible does see things, is chaos and order. So those of you with German grandparents probably heard, cleanliness is next to godliness. We all kind of scoff at that. But there actually is wisdom there. And that is that is that the very essence of sin and the resultant curse is in fact chaos and disorder and unpredictability, uncertainty. So the battle cosmically, again, from Genesis to the very present, is also one of order over chaos. So I think you can see here in verse 23, doing wrong because they, do, they reject the pure blessing of God and find themselves in antithesis to him, even rejecting his existence, perhaps, or his goodness, certainly, then doing wrong becomes like a joke to to a fool. Contrasting that, but wisdom is pleasure to a man of understanding. And I think that this is where someone like St. Paul says, I delight in the law of God in my inward man. Wisdom, the wisdom of God is pleasure to a man of understanding. Of course, the fool wants nothing to do with that, and when he does wrong, he just perceives it as a joke. What's the other 
what's the other older Joker? What's his name? The Marvel Comics um, re-brought him up. Uh, Loki. Yeah, Loki. So Loki's kind of the god of chaos and disorder, isn't he? I'm looking at my experts, the, the, young, the young people in the room. Okay, and that really brings then this section, uh, begun at verse 6, now brought to a close here at verse 23. Generally speaking, you can see that the theme has been the mouth and the righteous use of the mouth. And it's impossible for, this to, for us to see or read this text in anything other than a Christian frame. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and as we fear him, then wisdom manifests itself especially in how we speak. You have no doubt heard this expression in the Lutheran Church, the thoughts, the words, and the deeds. Okay. So your thoughts, you know, and, and this would be good, I used a Luther quote last night in our catechetical class, it would be good to kind of pull it out again here. With your thoughts, it's very much like a bird flying over head, that it might, it might get you with some of its droppings. And that's, that's not good, of course. Nobody wants that. But there's a profound difference between that occurring and you allowing the bird to come and build a nest in your hair where it's going to be doing its business all the darn time. Okay? And that's true for thoughts, too. That as they come in, that's the immediate battleground. Get away from me, bird. I don't want you or your dung. <laughs> okay? Uh, I can't help the fact that you flew in. I didn't ask for it. Here you are. But away with you as quickly as possible. All right? You get yourself cleaned up. You mop off your hair. You mop off whatever filth was left from that thought. And you move on. So that's, that's really the first stage. If you let that evil thought build a nest, so to speak, what's next to come is either word or deed, and frequently word then deed. So that's worth paying attention to in this context of wisdom, that the first battle lines are drawn in the mind with the thoughts, and you can frequently get way ahead of sins if you'll fight the fight right then and there while it's still at that level. Once it's been said... It's often impossible to take back. And it is very, and when it can be taken back, it's often very painful. And so we're reticent to do that. Nobody wants to eat their own words. So, of course, that would be better than going on, but it gets progressively harder and harder. And of course, deeds can even be less undone than words. They have an even greater kind of permanence to them. And it becomes all the more painful to recall those deeds or to repent of those deeds once they've been committed. So again, I think it behooves us to just view these things holistically as we're looking at wisdom, we're looking at thoughts, words, and deeds. And indeed, we can even see a kind of... um, gradation of sin and its effects. You know, a sinful thought is there. It's sinful. It's damning. It needs to be repented of. Okay. But who's it hurting? Maybe just you. Okay. 
But now you manifest that sinful thought into a sinful word, and now it is spread out to others. And this is a little bit of a paradox, because if we're talking in earthly matters, words tend to be less decisive and less impactful and less weighty than deeds. But of course, in the spiritual sphere, in the right-hand kingdom, generally speaking, if you will, the ecclesiastical sphere, words actually have even more power because a false teaching has a sort of ability to infect hearts and minds um, in in a profound way where you can murder souls, which is infinitely worse than murdering someone in their body, let's say. Okay, so there is some paradox and some nuance here, but... Generally speaking, words then um, are greater than thoughts and implicate and deepen sin and its consequences more. But again, think about this, like, would it be better if you threatened to do something or if you actually carried it out? Well, of course, the best answer is don't let it get there in the first place, okay? <laughs> but, this, but once it has gotten there and you've threatened it, wouldn't it be better to stop it there as opposed to carrying it through with an action? Of course. So the action tends to be so decisive that it's often irreparable um, from a human standpoint. Okay, so bringing those things out, the place of the mouth holistically in terms of our walking down the path of wisdom. Okay, any thoughts or comments? Any questions? Anything rolling around? We're okay? All right. So this next section, I think, will likewise be relatively straightforward. Uh, 24, verse 24 through verse 32 And here, it's just very generally going to be a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. Again, if we're reading this as we should, this can be a contrast between believers and unbelievers. So, right off the bat, verse 24, What the wicked dreads will come upon him, but the desire of the sadakim, which is the very common word for righteous, will be granted. So you have the wicked versus the righteous. Now, biblically, what does it mean to be righteous? Well, at the time in which Solomon is writing this, they all have faith in the coming Christ. They don't know his name is Jesus, but that's where their faith is in. Their faith is in Yahweh who dwells with them in the midst of the temple. What's going on at the temple? Well, there's cleansing of sins. And there's renewal through the ongoing preaching of God's word. To be a righteous person isn't to be a sinless person. It's to be a person cleansed and renewed by the word of God. So you can think of that in terms of the temple and the sacrifices going on that uh, foreshadow the great sacrifice of Christ on the cross. You can think of the preaching of the word flowing out from the temple in the same way the preaching of the word Uh, pointed to the Christ, it now points us to the Christ who is our Lord Jesus. So I think very easy to translate here that a righteous person is one who is cleansed by Yahweh and renewed by Yahweh, desiring to walk in his wisdom and in his ways. 
All right, well, the one who has rejected this, the wicked one, what he dreads, his worst nightmares will come upon him. Okay? And that's ultimately and dreadfully true. The worst you know, dread of a wicked person is that there is in fact a God and he is in fact paying attention. He did in fact have mercy on me, but I rejected that. And now I have no one to blame but myself. And that's in fact the course of the wicked. But the desire of the righteous will be granted. And that's only true in an earthly way, I think, in a limited sense. But ultimately, the desires of our hearts aren't earthly. You know, the desire of the Christian heart per se isn't for a really nice car and a really nice house and a life of ease. It's ultimately the desire for the new heavens and the new earth in which we shall behold God, in which righteousness and justice will flow freely and all of creation will again be in harmony. All of the family of God will again be one. These are the kinds of things we desire and that will be granted. Okay, so not to make too much of it, because we could labor on one of these for you know an hour or more, no doubt, but just contrasting wicked with righteous, the wicked with the righteous, and what their ends are. One ends in dread, the other ends in desires granted. Okay, verse 25, when the tempest passes, the wicked is no more. But the righteous is established forever. Does the tempest come upon the righteous one as well? Yes, that's inferred. Do you remember anyone who told a story about a tempest coming upon a righteous man and an unrighteous man and what the outcome of that tempest was? Yeah, building your house on the rock and the sand. Jesus... uh, speaking to this very same theme, um, likening one who hears his words but does not take them to heart, does not do them, does not want to walk in them. To a man who builds, depending on the gospel, I think um, I think this way is the most stark way he puts it, who builds on the sand without a foundation. I mean, you would never do that. I'm architecturally challenged, but I can guarantee you that you would never do that. You would never be like, oh, hey, here's the beach. Let's just put up some, uh, you know, walls. Any foundation there? Ah, unnecessary expense. Okay, well, when the storm comes, and in this specific case, when the storm comes and the river swells and starts beating against the walls, there's... No foundation, there's only sand, and the whole thing falls, and great is its fall. Okay, when the tempest passes, the wicked is no more. But as Jesus says, the one who hears my words and does them, practices them. Again, we can dissect that into a twofold way that's familiar to us. Confessing our sins, receiving his forgiveness, walking in renewal. That's what it means to be righteous. And so, the one who hears my words and does them, the Lord says, I will liken him to a man who builds a foundation upon the rock. 
the same tempest comes, the same river swells, the same river tries to knock down the walls and knock down that house, but it cannot because its foundation is laid and it is laid into the rock, the rock of God's wisdom. So the righteous is established forever. And that part of Jesus' teaching um, where he contrasts the man who hears but does not do and the man who hears and does is a, a theme worth paying attention to because Jesus says it, I think, much more frequently than we often realize and will sometimes just point blank say, take care how you hear. Pay attention to how you hear. How are you receiving my words? And any number of the parables can be manifested to demonstrate this. But if you just think about the parable of the different kinds of soil, they're different kinds of people. That's literally what Jesus says they are. But you, as his disciple, want to take care lest you emulate one of those kinds of people that you're not. It is very possible to hear the word of God and let it bounce right off your heart and just become food for the demons. It is possible to hear it, to believe it for a time, to receive it with joy, but when it gets difficult to hold fast to that belief, then you give it up. Now again, we're talking about a category of people who reject the gospel, but don't be like them is also a sub-point. Likewise, when you receive that word of God, don't let the cares, the worries of life, the riches of life or the pleasures of life um, block out that word of God so that you don't have it. And that's very easy to do. Don't be like those people who do that with the gospel. Don't be like them at all. Be like that which you are, the good soil, the one who has ears to hear. Let him hear and take care how you hear. And make sure that when you hear, you're not a hearer only, but a doer also. Okay, that's quick Refresh on our Lord's catechesis in regard to the ears. Okay, anything you want to talk about? We all right? Please. Oh, one second. We have a microphone racing towards you. <laughs> oh, I, just the idea of, or the, uh, the situation of um, <clears throat> hearing the word, reading the word, but it not really it being in your heart or not really, I don't know, feeling is the right word, but doing, not doing the word, just that, that problem that I imagine I'm not the only one yeah. <laughs> as a Christian uh, deals with that, so that sometimes the more you try to immerse yourself in the word, you it almost... Might find yourself bouncing off of it, or <laughs> yeah, exactly. And apropos of uh, our our readings today of Jacob, who is then named Israel, being which means wrestling with God, and apropos of the Canaanite woman who's um, being rebuked by our Lord, ignored by Him, and rebuked by Him, continuing to wrestle with Him. So that is the pursuit of that is the pursuit of theology. So we've got this beautiful. I, I just think that I think that a lot of the problem is when you've got a really strong doctrine of the Word, 
It's all monergistic. God does everything. The Word does everything. That's true, but you can cling to that to the exclusion of what the Word itself says, ironically. Because the Word itself indicates in many and various ways the activity that the Lord wants to take place, the wrestling, the striving, the taking care that you not just passively hear, but also embrace and do, that you take care how you hear, that you strive not to be those unfruitful kinds of soil. I mean, that's what the word itself says. So there is a component of that. And I think we just, the Lord wants us to realize that that's part of being one of his disciples. I mean, if we want to get all technical about it, what's, what's in opposition to the word? Well, our own hearts, the world and all its lies, and the devil and who knows how many fallen angels. They're all against us. So it's going to be a wrestle and a struggle. And the prayers, the ancient prayers of the church are, are a great help here too. I think of the collect, one of uh, our most beloved collect prayers um, that says that we would read, mark, learn, and I'm, I've got kind of a childish mind. I mean, I, I think sometimes that actually means mark. <laughs> read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest. That is to say, I think the beauty of this collect is not that we take it so scientifically as if like this is some sort of steps necessarily, but just that we, we all recognize as Christians that there's more to it than, oh, when the tempest passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous established forever. Got it. And there's more to our Christian faith than, yeah, I'm catechized. I read the catechism 56 years ago. I'm good. It's an ongoing engagement with the Word of God. It's an ongoing wrestle with God. It's an ongoing discipleship and an ongoing journey down the path of wisdom. Yeah, Read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest. Inwardly digest is there. It's weird. It's like crass, not beautiful language. But what do you do with your food when you inwardly digest it? It becomes part of you. Yeah, it becomes written into your DNA. And so that's the, idea. that's the idea with the Word of God, that it gets written into us and it starts to form our conscience. I mean, going back to the holistic man, it starts to form our thoughts, form our words, and form our deeds. And what's the antithesis? That the wicked one does those things. Okay. Great point. Thank you for bringing that up. Anything else? Yes, sir. I see uh, another hand here. What comes to mind for me is Psalm 1, where it talks about uh, the righteous one is firmly planted, deeply rooted. Mm -hmm. Because why? He meditates on God's law Mm -hmm. day and night. Mm Mm-hmm. And then that directs me to Luther's discussion or reflection on meditation, what that is. Yeah. The chewing, the, the mulling over, the, where it, it, it's a digestive process again. Uh, and then that, again, leads to the, a healthy, well-rooted, well-grounded tree yeah. uh, that is contrasted with, again, the wicked who are like chaff that yes. just blow away. Yes, exactly right. I, I love both of the major points that you brought up, um, that 
Christians are likened to strong cedars with their roots sunk deep into the ground. When the storm comes, nothing's going to knock them down. They're rooted into Christ. They're tapped into the living water of, of him and his word. Absolutely right. And that's what we want to aspire to be. I mean, that's the idea. And then, yeah, meditatio. So Luther will say, and this doesn't, Luther will say that what makes a theologian are three things, uh, meditatio, oratio, and tentatio. And uh, when he says what makes a theologian, he doesn't mean, you know, this is what happens to you at seminary and only at seminary, or this is what happens to you if you're a pastor and only a pastor, or a professor and only a professor. No, he means this for all people. But the first um, that I mentioned, meditatio, is precisely this, tossing over God's word, writing it into your heart, wrestling with it, thinking about it, um, dare I say even playing with it, trying to explore. And this is, where, this is where we get really uncomfortable when there's things we don't understand or don't know from the scriptures. I, I've come in my old age rather to delight in those things because you recognize that you're at a place where there's growth to be had. You go, this doesn't line up. This doesn't make sense. I can't fit this piece into the puzzle I've currently got. <laughs> okay, well, maybe your puzzle's askew and you don't know it. So that's, that's one way to think about it. Um, anyway, this delighting on the meditatio. And then the other oratio prayer. So, and this ties directly into the word because what we realize as Christians is that there's a conversation happening. God's speaking to you every day in his word. And dare I say it, God's even speaking to you in creation. Okay. Uh, the, the church for many, many centuries believed that there were two books of Revelation, one creation itself and the other the scriptures. And so God is speaking to you in creation. God is speaking to you in his word to respond is oratio, prayer. And really, I mean, I don't mean to, this to sound legalistic. I mean it to sound um, like ontological, like a matter of being. You can't really be much of a Christian without prayer. It's not a legalistic thing like, okay, well, how many hours, Pastor, until I pass the threshold and I'm no longer accused? That's not it. It's just how on earth are you going to be hearing and receiving the word of God and not respond to it? You see? It's an organic, ontological matter of being. As you receive his word, you respond to it in prayer. And your prayers So my prayer be could perfect. be as simple as, what the heck, Lord? What was that? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, the, the prayers that sustain us <laughs> throughout the day. God be thanked. God be praised. God, please help. God, what the heck? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. God, help. God, I don't know what to do. God, give me the words. <laughs> those, are the, those are the prayers that punctuate our, our moments uh, all the way through um, as, we, as we move from one more formal prayer to another, you know, the mornings, <laughs> the meals, the evening. Yeah. And then the last one you're not really in control of, and that's tentatio. That's the uh, temptation in a theological sense, the affliction, the crosses that God lay upon you. And what would be maybe most acutely in view for Luther is where God promises something and then immediately, well, not necessarily immediately, but forcefully contradicts that with your experience. 
Okay. So, you know, get married, he said. It'll be fun, he said. <laughs> it, it'll, be the, it'll be the medicine that you need to be whole. Okay, and then you jump into the vocation of marriage and maybe you find it's not precisely, or at least at all times, that way. What the heck? (laughs) One of my favorite lines to rip out of context from Jeremiah, because I think it's so fitting in this context, is, you deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. Uh, I thought I was getting, I, you know, I was getting into this, right? And, and you told me it would be a good idea to get into this, and I got into this, and it doesn't look like that great of an idea. Now, now of course, tr- you know, your trust kicks in, and your ability to go through the affliction kicks in, your experience of tentatio, wrestling with God, and clinging to the fact that your knee-jerk reaction to, uh, hey, this isn't going according to plan, <laughs> what's God doing? is just the beginning of a deeper kind of wrestling that you can have with him. And that's the third sort of aspect Luther identifies as what actually makes us, over time, theologians. It's not, hey, I prayed and God gave me everything I wanted. It's, hey, I prayed and God didn't give that to me. Hey, I've been praying for a few years now and this hasn't happened. I've tried to be nice. I've tried to be mean. (laughs) I've tried to not care. I've tried to care more. (laughs) It's like nothing's working. And that happens in so many of our different vocational relationships. You can think of parents with children. You can think of work situations. You can think of chronic relationships with family members and friends. Uh, You can think of self-improvement that you're trying to do. You know, different battles you have in your own mind or with your own mouth their own behavior and deeds. Um, These are all realities of tentatio, and they're normal in the Christian life. I mean, this is where, you know, when people outside call us hypocrites because we fall into sin, it's like, "Ah, it's just so stupid as to not even be hurtful, not even to be a realistic challenge, because anyone who's a Christian knows that there's meditatio, meditation and chewing on God's word. There's oratio, prayer with all of its beauty and grittiness, and there's the tentatio, or the experience of affliction and the realities of sin and curse and God's ways not being our ways. Okay, very good. Anything else we want to add to that? Alice? This is my favorite um, bugaboo. When I talk to people that are Christians, I've been praying and praying and praying, and God's blessed me so much. I have so many blessings. And I say, what about the person who's praying and praying and praying? And the blessing doesn't come as a, as a favorable response, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, I have a friend who's always going, oh, God's going to bless me. And I think God's already blessed you, you yeah. know, it, in every circumstance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that happens a lot. Yeah. Because what about the poor... The poor beggar who prays and prays and yeah, well, doesn't have great circumstances. Right. I mean, this is such a fitting Sunday uh, because the American Christianity has a really hard time, if it's honest, with the epistle lesson from Romans today where Paul talks about counting it all joy when you come into many and various trials. 
And American Christianity is so often like, I prayed and prayed and prayed, and look, my life is trial-free. Wouldn't you like to be like me? <laughs> Check out my Instagram for a more accurate reflection of how glorious my life is. <laughs> I mean, in, in, in some sense, I actually feel pity. Like if that, because what if that really is their life? Shallow spirituality. I mean, I actually kind of feel pity. Hey, look how great I am. I've got it all figured out. I, I wouldn't trade spots with you. When you look at the, even when you look at the scriptures, look at the great people of God, how many of them were like, are in the, recorded in the Bible because everything went great? <laughs> that was wild what the people of God go through in the scriptures, uh, the ups and downs. Um, so the uh, epistle from Romans 5, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, and I might mess this up because it's not consistent in the scriptures. It's not a perfect system. Uh, Vicar, maybe you remember. Um, but as you look into, as you get the afflictions, then comes along, is it endurance? Is that what comes next? And endurance, then comes character, and character hope, and hope does not disappoint. I feel like maybe I'm missing an ingredient somewhere in there, but I'll have to absolve myself. The idea, though, is that so when the afflictions, when the tentatio, when the frustrations have come, instead of being like, God, what? why are you like this? <laughs> Say, okay, bare minimum, I'm being taught endurance. Has anybody been able to pull it up? All right. Endurance. Hope is endurance, character, hope. I think those were the ones I said. That's it. Sometimes there's another one jammed in there. I think maybe you were thinking of that. Patience, yeah. Yeah. Well, and patience and endurance are always kind of slippery. They're often the same in the scriptures. But yeah, okay. So the, yeah, I mean, bare minimum, what you're learning is endurance. To cling to God and to who He is and His goodness, even when it appears that He doesn't care about you and life is hard and He's not listening to your prayers. So already there's a gift there, endurance. We see that manifested in the Canaanite woman. She endures. And then, of course, character. And we think that like character is just a matter of like humor or you know something like that. Character really comes about, I mean, I think, um, so what do you, what do you uh, like if you've got a pair of cowboy boots, okay, I realize I'm kind of in the wrong region for that, but <laughs> you've got a pair of cowboy boots, as they age, they look better. They get beat up. They get creased, they get scuffed, the color gets uneven, and somebody looks at the, those and says, they look like they've got a lot of character. And in fact, in our fake culture, you know, you can get your jeans with prefabbed character. You can look like you can get your cowboy boots with prefabbed character. So it looks like you've, you know, really been through some things and they've seen some things. Yeah, you've been through the air-conditioned Nordstroms. That's about it. Uh, So this idea of character in the soul is I think, I think that's a good analogy for thinking of character. Okay? You're going to have unique experiences in the Christian faith that shape and mark you as a soul, as a person. 
And those, by the way, I mean, not that everything needs to be utilitarian and pragmatic. I actually kind of despise that. But these are, by the way, going to allow you to talk with people who have had tangential experiences in a way that other people can't. So there's your pragmatic aspect of it. But again, I would just kind of steer you away, even though that's true. That's not like why God's doing it. It's sort of a blessed side effect, okay? Um, But the bottom line is because he demands that his saints have character. God does not like all things to be the same, in case you can't tell from creation. (laughs) So his saints are going to have wonderful character, and that character is going to blossom through in hope. And that's, you know, I think that that's the full, kind of the fullness of the soul to which God is calling us, that after you've endured an affliction, and you've endured, and you've endured, and you've gotten character from it, and you're clinging to him in such a way that you realize, whether it happens or not, it doesn't much matter. Even though when you began, the earth was shaking under your feet and the heavens were falling apart around you and it was cataclysmic. You just, you've come to a place where you go, my hope is in the Lord, not in myself, not in my desires, not in the fulfillment of this thing, not in the alleviation of this cross or problem. My hope is in him. Maybe that's a good place to end. Uh, contrasting the happy, clappy, all my prayers are answered, my life is perfect, which, I again, I don't really think exists if it's genuine Christianity, and if it does, it's to be pitied, not desired, because God sends afflictions and chastisements precisely upon those whom he loves, and he works wonderful things through that tentatio, not least of which forming us into greater and greater theologians, not only for this life, but unto the ages of ages. All right, the Lord be with you.